Hello and welcome to the Harper's Magazine podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. In this episode, we'll hear a story read by Natalie Holly titled, They Told Us Not to Say This, written by Jen Alandi Trayan. And then after the story, there's a short interview with Jen. They Told Us Not to Say This by Jen Alandi Trahan. The few white boys in our town could ball. Breakaway layups, nothing but the bottom of the net free throws, buzzer beater fadeaways. They slept with basketballs in their beds and told us about their dreams. We tried not to stare at the diamond studs in their ears as they talked about winning imaginary games in overtime or seeing blurry scoreboards. It don't matter if I can see the score anyway, I'm finna play my hardest regardless, Brent Zaleski once said, squinting his eyes in the sunlight. Brent Zaleski lived in the crest. He didn't flinch at the sound of gunshots. He received detentions weekly, and he ganked tapes and CDs from Warehouse, with the clunky security devices still attached. Brent Zaleski knew how to get them off, armed only with pliers and a big lighter. This was 1996, and he never got caught. He took music requests, and we'd find surprises in our lockers at school. We loved him for this. We loved his buzzed blonde hair, his stainless steel chain necklace, his jawline, his position. Brent Zaleski played point guard. All the boys on the team respected him. They called him Z. When the boys got their basketball photos from Life Touch, we collected them like baseball cards and kept them in hole-punched plastic sleeves in our day planners. Each year, Z's wallet-sized basketball pick slid into the front of our collections. Freshman year, he simply signed his name in the back. Peace, Brent. Junior year, he wrote more words on the one he gave Marori Balancio. Sup, Rory, I think you're hella fine. Peace, Brent. Back then, there were two movie theaters in town. He took her to the one that didn't smell like Black and Miles and piss. Marori said he drove up with a cigarette tucked behind his right ear, and he didn't light it until after he dropped her off at home. She saw the small spark hanging outside his car window because he had waited until she unlocked the front door. Marori couldn't help but look back and wave before she walked inside. Earlier during the movie, Brent Zaleski had fed her popcorn. She said it was like he knew exactly how much she needed when she needed more in her mouth. We could only imagine what it felt like to have his fingers so close to our open lips. Our parents said no boyfriends until we were 30. They didn't talk to our brothers like this because they wanted to bend down and kiss all their titis every day. Sons got brand new Honda Preludes on their 16th birthdays. Our moms took wannabe directors to Circuit City and bought camcorders that ended up in corners collecting dust. Wannabe rock stars got Fender Stratocasters. And we felt like those street performers in the city who stand on overturned milk crates and hope for quarters in an open guitar case. Still, we sang a cappella by our lockers on breaks. We wanted to be in Vogue, Escape, TLC, SWV. Anytime Brent Zleski walked by, we got so weak in the knees we could hardly speak, you know? We wondered if we'd still know him when we turned 18, all of us desperate for him in our cotillions. Rosil Manalo's mom said throwing a cotillion would be a waste of money, but she also bought a big-ass Louis Vuitton hobo and filed a police report like it was a missing person when it got stolen from her shopping cart at the canned food grocery outlet. 
I had never seen her cry so hard before. Rosal told us, not even when she thought someone kidnapped me at the service merchandise. We weren't worth much. Not as much as sons. Sons never fucked up. Sons never had to pay rent. Marori's brother got a girl prego when he was 18, and they mooched off her parents for years. His babies are good luck, her mother said, excited about becoming a Lola. But vacuuming at night was bad luck. Cutting nails at night was bad luck. Buying someone's shoes was bad luck. If you give shoes as a gift, that person will walk out of your life forever. Moles, the color red, aquariums, all good luck. If something bad is going to happen to you in the house, the goldfish will absorb it. We're not sure why we listened to the women who pinched our noses in the kitchen when we were kids because we'd be so maganda if our noses weren't so flat and our skin wasn't so dark. The complexion of the poor people who work in the province. We envied Liana Benitez because her mother was dead. Still, it was ingrained in us all to listen to our elders without question, to read their minds, to fetch things they pointed at with their chins. We barely knew our lolas and lolos, but every time we saw them, no matter how old we were, we reflexively reached out for the backs of their wrinkled hands to touch to our foreheads in greeting. Bless, bless, they would say. For all we know, they could have been assholes when they were younger, but it didn't matter. They had white hair now, so we had to obey them. No questions asked. Jason Lagundi showed up in a limo to take Rosil to prom, and her mother grounded her. She wouldn't have done that if he had been a white boy from Black Hawk, the kind who'd grow up to rock Brooks Brothers or Nantucket Reds from Murray's toggery shop, the kind who never liked working or practice because he never had to. Didn't you know he was the kind who deserved everything, the kind who'd marry you only if you looked good on paper, the kind who apologized for sweating while he made love to you, the kind who wouldn't still eat you out after getting his lip busted in a fight because, well, he'd never thrown a punch in his life? These boys lived across the Benicia Martinez Bridge, and then some, far enough away to look better, even though they sagged their pants and wore backward caps they thought they could wear Vallejo, you know? Like it was a high school phase. They'd wear it and take it off when it was time to grow up. When you grow up, you should be a doctor. Did you know your Lolo was a doctor in the Philippines? When you grow up, you should be a lawyer. You can make a lot of money and buy a big house. Did you know I had a big house in Quezon City? It was always about the house. Liani Benitez lived in an apartment, and they talked about it like it was a shame. Anyone with a four-bedroom in Glen Cove was automatically a good person. They shook their heads when they told them where Brent Zaleski lived. He's not going to go anywhere, our mother said. Our Lolas echoed them with, what, you think he's going to grow up to be a professional player, like on the TV? We didn't have an answer for that. What we knew was that Brent Zaleski played like it mattered. Real game or scrimmage, there was no difference. What we knew was that Brent Zaleski wasn't afraid to fight for his team, for our school, for us. 
What we knew was that he liked reading about all kinds of professional athletes for inspiration. He would talk to us about real life things in the hallway. Did you know that Wayne Gretzky used to eat dinner with his skates on when he was a kid? Did you know Roberto Clemente used to stay late after practice and do one hot throws into an overturned trash can at home plate over and over and over again because it was the hardest throw to make from his position? To Brent Zaleski, there was never a point where great athletes stopped working at being great. No buzzers, no finish lines. They couldn't rely on luck. They were always playing the game, working harder, trying to be better. We tried to relate this to our parents. To them, it didn't matter that Brent Zaleski threw his heart out on the court for his teammates night after night during the season. They couldn't admire how he made fast decisions, how he casually threw up fingers to call a play as he dribbled past the half-court line, how teammates leaned closer to him during a timeout, how he lifted off the floor in the paint and floated in midair. It didn't matter that he weaved and shot and fought for wins in the good-for-nothing gym in front of people like us. In the middle of junior year, Brent Selesky started dating Marori. We covered for her and never told her parents where she really was. After dinner one night, he pulled her into his bedroom by curling one finger around a belt loop on her jeans. There was more desire in that move than anything I'd ever felt in my whole life. She still insists. He had one chick poster in his room, just one, mixed in with his favorite athletes. Marori was expecting to see a blonde. Her mother had a pedestal for a coworker named Virginia. My blonde friend, Virginia. Virginia and I did lunch today. Did you know that she's white? But Jocelyn's hair was dark, like ours, only highlighted in ways we weren't allowed to think about. Some of us straight up had mustaches, but our mothers never said anything as if the longer we stayed furry, the longer they could keep the leashes on. Don't wear lipstick, my mother said. Lipstick will make your lips turn brown, and you don't want them to be brown. This brown girl on the poster, she didn't have a mustache. Who's Jocelyn Enriquez? Marori asked. You don't know who this is? Marori shook her head. She half expected him to talk about how Jocelyn Enriquez looked because that was the routine. When we wore flannel shirts from Choice, our mother said we looked like farmers. When we stood up straight, They didn't like that we looked taller than them. We were too skinny, too fat, our hair was too long, our hair was too short, gained them more pounds. They'd force feed us bowls of mashed potatoes and butter and sigh when the scales never changed. Cut your hair. None of us were just right. And when we did crave arroz caldo from Goldilocks, our parents took us to Red Lobster or Olive Garden instead. Marori was still looking at Jocelyn Enriquez when Brent Zaleski pulled a pair of headphones from underneath a pillow. He carefully placed them over Marori's ears, picked her up, and put her on the bed. These were the days of Walkmans, blank cassette tapes, and running to the radio to push record. These were the days of working for what you wanted. No quick downloads, no instant anything. We asked her if they hooked up that night. No. She said, we just listened to Jocelyn Enrique's music. He was surprised I didn't know who she was. That same spring, we started to find Jocelyn Enrique's tapes and CDs in our lockers at school. We knew they were from him. Then Candace Guiano discovered that Jocelyn graduated from Pinoli Valley High School, just 10 miles away from us. And we got 
hella excited when we learned Jocelyn was a member of the San Francisco Girls Chorus and had a recording contract by the time she was 16. Roberto Clemente was from Puerto Rico, Wayne Gretzky, Canada, and here was Jocelyn, who grew up so close to home. We listened to her voice in our bedrooms at night and turned the volume up a little when we heard a track and to Gaulog. Our parents were ashamed of the language even though they spoke it. We used to joke that they didn't teach us as kids because they didn't want us to grow up to have accents like theirs. I don't have an accent. English was the medium of instruction in the Philippines. But when we listened to that Jocelyn Enriquez song in Tagalog, it sounded beautiful. At the end of the chorus were the words, Mahal Kita. We recognized this because of Brent Zaleski. He had written those two words at the bottom of a note in Marori's day planner. What does that mean? We asked her. It means I love you, she said. When we were in our beds that night, we thought about how strange it was, how we never heard our mothers and fathers say those words to us before. Mahalkita. When Marori tried out for the varsity, we joined her even though our parents said it was dangerous. They didn't want us doing anything outside of the house. We didn't think it would be of any satisfaction we didn't think we would be any safer staying inside and listening to our parents criticize us. You're going to get hurt, they warned us. We want to get hurt, we said. Brent Zaleski came to all of our home games. We played for him. At the free throw line, we slid our palms on the bottoms of our sneakers before taking the basketball from the ref. Our palms got dirty quick, but it made the ball feel secure in our hands. We bent at the knees and learned how to hunger for that sound, those flicks at the bottom of the net. In practice, after school, we did suicides until we felt like puking. We did them in our driveways at night, too. Somehow, in practice, we started to talk like the boys. When someone would miss a pass, we'd say, Where were you at, player? When someone shot an air ball, we'd put a fist to our mouths and boo like the boys. It wasn't long before we started to spit into our palms as we lined up to slap hands against opposing teams post-game. Good game. Good game. Good game, we'd all say. Sometimes, we couldn't hold in the laughs until the line was done. We blasted music in the gym during warm-ups before home games. Coach let us turn up the music so loud that we could feel the beat on the floor, could feel it in our bodies, our hearts. Who cared that the Bulls dominated back then and that the dubs were shit? On the court, we felt proud. During games, we took hits and threw elbows like champs. Who cared about girls from Napa who put their fingers in our faces and timed their pregame champ? Who cared about girls from Napa who put their fingers in our faces and timed their pregame team chant with ours? so you couldn't hear our voices. Who cared that we would grow up to have all kinds of girls interrupt us, correct us, cut us, talk over us, throw a shrimp cocktail at us? Could we blame them? We were brown like their nannies, brown like the big-eyed, dirty kids in those Save the Children commercials, brown like hotel housekeepers, brown like nurses who wiped asses, and brown like those Miss Universe runners-up who said things like, you know what, sir, in my 22 years of existence, I can say that there is nothing major, major, I mean, problem that I've done in my life. Because I'm very confident with my family. 
with the life that they are giving to me. So thank you so much that I'm on stage. Thank you. Thank you so much. Fuck. We're brown like their daddy's secretaries. Brown like the women their daddies beat off to and sometimes left the family for. Brown like me love you long time. Brown like I need to apologize for offending you. Brown like may I take your plate. Brown like you think I need your charity. And brown like how can I help you, sir? Back then, we helped ourselves. We dove out of bounds. We broke bones. We didn't care about sweat-slicked ponytails, didn't care about the skinned knees or bruises or scars, didn't bother with bandages in the mornings before school. We got hard. All the marks on our faces and bodies said, so what? I'm still here. And now, an interview with Jen Alandi Trahan. You've lived in 11 cities across the U.S., including the Bay Area, Louisiana. How would you say your exposure to these different milieus and manners of speech have influenced your relationship to language? Because there are, there are moments in the story that are musical, but also kind of verbal tics, um, such as they thought they could wear Vallejo, you know, like it was a high school phase. They'd take it off when it was time to grow up. Yeah, so um, this is an awesome question. Um, and I wanted to start with just saying that I think the fascination with language probably stems from the fact that two languages were part of my childhood home, even though I was only supposed to use one, which was English. Mm -hmm. uh, my parents, they immigrated from the Philippines and I'm first gen, you know, I was born in Houston, Texas, but they spoke Tagalog to each other. And that's how they communicated with relatives at family gatherings, or it's how they talked to each other when they didn't want my brother and I to know what they were talking about. Um, but, you know, after years and years of hearing things and using context clues, you start to figure things out. Um, so I'm not fluent, you know, but mm -hmm. something about that language feels like home. And I think that's where it all started. And then, you know, I spent 12 years of my life in Vallejo, and that's the longest I've ever lived in one place. I didn't go to high school there, though. And so you could say that language, you know, changed a bit. Um, maybe not the actual language, but let's just say I went to an all-girls school in the East Bay where there was just a lot of valley girl speak, you know, and my use of like in sentences increased like exponentially just by virtue <laughs> of being around that. And that's, I would go like hang out with my friends in Vallejo and they'd be like, you talk different, you know? <laughs> um, and I think that's just, I think you just can't help but mirror the social environment that you're in. And I'm really, really fascinated by that. Um, and then in college... So I, I think there's just uh, your story has such an incredible sense of place, whether it's, you know, black and milds or service <laughs> merchandise or all these different um, <laughs> little things that are very much of a specific time and of a specific place um, in a world that's increasingly sort of globalized and indistinct from, mm -hmm. you know, any other place. So I, I, I really loved that aspect of the story. You know, you mentioned growing up in a bilingual home or sort of a bilingual home mm -hmm. um, and the use of the we, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the we form in English is kind of rare um, and it sort of connects your story to Tagalog and Spanish. Um, I get, Why did you choose to write it in that form? You bring up a really cool point and um, unfortunately, here's a potentially just unexciting and boring answer. <laughs> 
um, that's pretty much devoid of a conscious or intentional, like sociopolitical agenda. Um, but before I wrote the first draft of the story, I was rereading The Virgin Suicides by Jeffrey Eugenides, um, mm-hmm. who I've never met, but I've heard wonderful things about him from one of my professors, um, Chang Ray Lee, who actually his own novel on such a full sea is also narr- narrated in that first person plural voice. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so I, I've, you know, made my way through the Virgin Suicides again. And then I was looking, I was hungering for another novel that was told in that voice. Cause I feel like it's such a challenging POV to write from. Um, mm-hmm. and so then I picked up, then we came to the end by Joshua Ferris. Um, who I met very briefly at the community of writers at Squaw Valley back in 08, just after the novel came out. And I was really fascinated just with that voice, like how to deploy it, like how it works, like what its pitfalls are. Um, it seemed like a really challenging voice to write in, but I couldn't help but gravitate to it because it felt like the heart of this particular story is about a community of girls and about how you can feel stronger when you're with other people or how, you know, you can feel stronger when you're on a, on a team. Yeah. And I think that question of strength and defiance is such a huge part of the story. You cited people like John Fante and uh, Charles Bukowski as inspirations for your writing. And you can definitely feel that in the language that you're using throughout the story, it is maybe more, not improper, but more conversational, but deployed in a way that's engaging. And you get this sense of defiance from the title, they told us not to say this, the list of what the sons get versus what daughters get. And in the and Brett Zaleski isn't so much an object to desire as what the object that we, the we of the story become. Do you have a sense of needing to create an expression of feminine anger that's sort of distinct from male anger? Or do you feel like that binary is sort of useless? Yeah. So I, I really love that you picked up on the fact that, you know, Brent isn't so much an object to desire, but you know, he's more of an object that the we, you know, strive to be. And, you know, thinking about, you know, this binary, you know, like so many of my literary heroes are, you know, they're indeed male, um, like Freeman Carver, Tobias Wolf, Dennis Johnson, mm-hmm. Adam Johnson, George Saunders. And, you know, I'm never going to come close to writing a collection like just like what we talk about when we talk about love. And so but I like what their voices are about and the subjects that they deal with. And it's my hope that the use of this communal voice helps the audience or any listeners or any readers to feel included in that. Um, I I couldn't help but think of something that Alice Walker said when she gave a talk um, on campus at Stanford not too long ago, and she opened it with saying something like, who here isn't suffering? And no Hmm. one raised their hand, you know? And so I feel like it's the same thing with anger or any emotion, you know, like who has never felt angry. So no matter what color you are or how you choose to identify or who you choose to love, I mean, like I hope the story um, or really like any art or anything that people create, uh, you know, tells the audience or other people like, hey, you know, like I see you, I feel you, you know, to go back to what you were saying about mm-hmm. colloquial language, um, I do feel like, uh, you know, when I was in college, 
when I had, I, I realized that when I said things like I feel you or really when I said things like Hella, you know, it, mm-hmm. it sort of gave my identity away in a sense that people immediately knew like, oh, you're from the Bay Area, mm-hmm. you know, and, and people, I went to UC Irvine. And so down South, at least at that point in time, instead of Hella, people from Southern California said a grip, you know, and so mm-hmm. I'm so fascinated with how the ways in which people talk um, reveal things or about who we are or where we came from. And I suppose the the goal is to use that language in the hopes that no matter where or who the readers or listeners are, um, can somehow identify with the characters or the emotion, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, could you talk a little bit about going through that pop cultural excavation, that linguistic excavation for this story, because obviously people don't now don't necessarily talk the way they did in 1996. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Although I will say I just uh, met up with two of my girlfriends from Phileo over the weekend. And it's and it's just so funny how being back with them, just the hell has just come back. <laughs> you know, like you just, <laughs> yeah. you, you just go back to that. Um, just to how you talk, because um, it's like the language of where you grew up. But I love how you said pop culture excavation, um, because, you know, it's really about picking the right or using the right details that serve the story that's being told. And for instance, you know, music, sure, sports plays a huge part of the story, but Music also plays a role, and in an earlier version, I mean, I had I had things that I'd written that had um, like vinyl in it, and you know, like I, I mentioned certain albums, um, and I stripped that away. But you know, the music is still there, which is why I felt like it was necessary to, you know, in the opening, say exactly where those, you know, Trent Zaleski would or Brent, excuse me, Brent Zaleski would steal the CDs from, you know, warehouse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there's no such thing as warehouse anymore, sadly. Right. Um, and it felt crucial that I not just say store, you know, like I, I needed to mm-hmm. be really specific with, you know, with that one, for example. You know, another thing that I actually was reminded of just, you know, going back to language, you know, I can't help but think of things like, code switching Mm. and how, you know, that seems to be a buzzword these days. And, and I think, I think that's represents more of my really like fascination with language and it and how it communicates identity. I was at a orientation for my daughter and her, her teacher was saying something about how um, my daughter is two and her, her teacher was saying something about, how it's important to be aware of the language that you use, like to not just be on autopilot, like, oh, be careful. Mm -hmm. Oh, great job. Or just these robotic responses because the language lets your child know who you are. And, and, you know, to just take that and map it on to, you know, like on a macro level, I mean, language is how other people know who we are. Yeah. Just the fact that there are these boys that 
girls desire who maybe don't adhere to or they are just sort of trying on an identity because they're teenagers and you can do that at that age with very little repercussions if you are careful about it let's say Mm -hmm. um and then these girls everything is so prescribed either by their families or by white society and Mm -hmm. they feel so boxed in and their way to rebel against that is to be physical aggressive and relentless in their physicality which is Mm -hmm. just such a I don't know I thought it was so interesting yeah I you know I I love that you were talking about just how they're trying on identities um and then I'd like to touch on the last thing that you said about them being relentless in their physicality because I think that Mm -hmm. that raises some other great great threads um but I I can't help but remember Claire Mithood had wrote, she wrote this short story called Erotomorphia and Zoetrope Allstory published it back in 97, like when the journal was first getting off the ground. And my mother actually worked for American Zoetrope back then and brought the journal home. And the story Mm -hmm. is about a woman, Isabella Greengrass, who absorbs the um, hobbies and interests of her lovers and she's aware of this. So it's like, you know, she dates a musician and all of a sudden she's, you know, trying to be a musician herself or she dates an actor and all of a sudden here she is, you know, trying to take up acting. Anyway, I want to get I don't want to get too much um, into the story, but I think it's a wonderful story because it just makes me think of how, um, you know, certain ways of speaking or like certain words just like I couldn't help but absorb, you know, because of who I was with at the time, like. When I was at UC Irvine, um, after I graduated, I dated this professional skimboarder who was living in San Juan Capistrano at the time, and he always used the word gnarly, just always, you know, <laughs> and maybe that word is, is dated, you know, but to this yeah. day, like, I have this, I have this fond love of that word, gnarly. I just feel like it's so mm. versatile, and and I'll, and I'll deploy it, like, I'll use it, um, and it just, and it cracks me up, and it cracks other people up, too. Um, but in some situations, it just feels so perfect. Um, but yeah, to, to move on to what you were saying about the girls just feeling really oppressed. Um, and I love how you said that, you know, it's just everything is so prescribed for them, you know, that the only way for them to rebel is, is to be physically aggressive and to really relish like in their physicality. Like, I don't think I was conscious of this at the time. Um, I really think that I just, I, I'm a huge sports fan because I can't play sports. I don't know if I should have revealed that or not. Like, I don't know if it would have been cooler if I really was an amazing basketball player, but, um, (laughs) something that I am thinking about now is how powerful that is to be active in our bodies as women. Um, Mm -hmm. whereas I, and I feel that that's sort of a, not an antidote, but, but like a different sort of dialogue that you start to have against things like objectification and just being like static bodies. Like it's more about being physical bodies that are deliberately choosing to make certain actions. Yeah, absolutely. Just thinking about the history of women working Mm -hmm. that, you know, women have always worked, but just that they've worked in subservient positions to men, as opposed to taking the lead role and that women are 
considered like helpers. Right. And that, again, that was sort of what I was trying to get at with my question about, is there, is there really actually a binary or is it just sort of, again, this, this thing that we've imagined? Right, right. Like, I like, I like pondering that, you know, like, is there a binary, you know? Um, and I think part of something that just came up as I was listening to you talk was, you know, the women in, in, in this story, you know, try to take not try to take, but they take action in the way that they, um, in a way that they want to. And I, I remember purposely thinking to myself, you know, Brent Zaleski thinks this is cool that they're doing this, you know, like he, he goes to their games, you know, and they feel like they're playing for him. And so I, I like this idea of there being a partnership of sorts well a partnership that has to that has to do with with sports really um and men being the spectators um in a way that is supportive right yeah all right well i think this has been really good yeah so thank you (laughs) you've been listening to the harper's magazine podcast produced and edited by violet luca The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save. 